Today I want to pick up, before, as part of our service today, sermon today, um, on what Matt said about Abigail's name. As a, as a parent, it's an easy job to choose a name, because after all, you're just choosing a name, aren't you? You're going to get a name book, and you flick through, and you go, that one will do. And ideally, if it's a boy, you land on the boys' section. If it's a girl, you land on the girls' section, and job done. In reality, that's what it should be like. In reality, it's a nightmare. Because you're thinking through all the permutations and connotations of how, what will this be shortened to? How will that go with our surname? What middle name? Does it make any rude initials when we put them all together? Uh, does that name remind me of anybody obnoxious at primary school that I can't possibly have that name? You know, all these sort of things are going on as you're choosing a name. And Abigail, the name comes, it's a biblical name. There's a couple of Abigails in the Bible. The most well-known was uh, a woman who became eventually David's wife, and we meet her at a time when she's actually somebody else's wife who then dies. She's widowed, and she then becomes David's wife. And the Bible describes it like this. It says that this introducing the man. It says this man's name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman. But her husband was surly and mean in his dealings. What a contrast. The Jewish book of teachings, the Talmud, actually goes on to say that there were four women of surpassing beauty in the world, and Abigail's one of those four. Um, so there you go. You can draw your own conclusions from that. This, this lovely lady, who seems to be wise as we read, about the, read of her in the story, she seems to know how to deal with people and understand circumstances, is married to an idiot. And uh, this guy eventually gets his comeuppance and dies, and uh, Abigail is, marries King David. Now, we're going to talk about King David at a different point in his life. It's a story seven chapters before this, and it's a time when... David, who'd been a shepherd boy, has killed Goliath. Many of you will have heard the story. Little boy, big bloke, well, little guy, big bloke, that sort of thing. And uh, the little guy wins. And he's defeated Goliath. And the story we're going to see picks up a little bit after that, when Saul the king and David the Goliath conqueror um, are kind of just navigating their relationship there and how they're going to get on after these events have happened. And this is the story we've got for you. So it's 1 Samuel 18, verse 5 to 9. And this is about King Saul and David the giant killer. It says this, Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, that's Goliath, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with tambourines and lyres. There is, there is a suitable place for a tambourine. There is. There is a suitable place. The second suitable place is if it's in the drummer's hands. The drummers are the people we trust with a tambourine because they've got rhythm, hopefully. Says this, there were tambour- I've got distracted now. Tambourines and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They've credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Hmm. So David's killed Goliath, he's been successful, he keeps being successful, and that pleases Saul initially, so he keeps promoting him. He thinks, I'm quids in here, 
this guy that I've chosen is, is, is kind of getting a good result every time I send him out. Therefore, it's going to look good on me if he does well. We're, we all win. Until he hears the sound of a song in his ears as David's coming back into the city. And these women are, are singing, Saul slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. After this, Saul attempts to kill David. He exiles him, or he, he ends up in exile. He chases him. He tries to remove the threats that he sees to his kingship. Now, now this is an extreme example, but it highlights a, an issue that I battle with sometimes, and perhaps you do too. But this is the issue of comparison and how comparison with other people can affect us. And I want to talk a little bit this, about this today and how we need to be beyond compare in God. Because comparison really is a killer. I was hearing a story this week, um, and, and this is, I think this is one area where comparison is most apparent. It's in the area of sport and athletics. I was hearing a story this week, and you may have heard it as well on the news. And there's a story that the uh, doping agencies are doing some retests of some samples that were taken years ago. And some athletes who kind of did very well in the Olympics, got silver or bronze medals, have been, are being in the process of having their samples retested and potentially face their medals being stripped from them. And there was a great British athlete being interviewed who had come forth in the javelin contest in a previous Olympics. And the story as it was unfolding, there was a, a, another competitor had come second. They'd got a silver medal, but were due to be disqualified because their uh, test sample showed that they'd cheated in drugs. And as I listened to this lady being interviewed, who had not got any medals, she kind of, was going to be promoted to getting a bronze medal, the interviewer was asking her what this felt like and what it was like. And she was explaining that her life would have been very different. The funding would have carried on and the, the money would have carried on. She'd been able to continue performing at an elite level, whereas actually she'd needed to adapt her life around the result of coming fourth, not third. And she said something very interesting. She said, the money would change, my life would be different, but the main thing that I feel I've had taken away from me is the opportunity to know how good I was really interesting. So I've had it taken away, the opportunity to know how good I really was. And I've lived for years not knowing how good I was. I thought it was profoundly interesting. Because do you know what? That lady being awarded a bronze medal instead of fourth place doesn't change the distance she threw. She still threw the javelin the same distance. If you want an objective measure of how good you are, you get the pointy thing and you throw it and you measure how far you've thrown it and you go, that's how good I am. I'm 60 meters, good. Or 70 meters, good. Or however far you can throw a pointy thing. But that's the objective measure. But she's saying, no, I, I've, I've lived for years not knowing how good I was. As if somehow it really mattered to her where she was placed rather than how far she could throw the javelin. I wonder what would have happened if everybody else had a really rubbish day. And she'd thrown it the same distance and everyone else just had a bad day. And she'd come first with that make her? Would it make us feel better? Because we had looked better than everybody else. Really a simple illustration, a simple point from David and Saul's story is that comparison never ends well. It might not end as dramatically as it did for these guys, chase, one being chased by the other, attempted murder and all sorts of things going on, but comparison never ends well. And I've got a few reasons why comparison isn't a good idea. 
for us today. The first is this, that your glasses, my glasses, are dirty. Your glasses are dirty. Now, some of you have got to the point of wearing ordinary, clear specs. Many of us have worn sunglasses. There's a problem if you put your glasses on and there's a load of muck and crud on them, you just can't see where you're going. You ever had that in the car? I have. You reach for your sunglasses as you're driving, and I think, oh, the sun's in my eyes. I get my sunglasses down, put them on, you think, that's worse than it was before. Because now I've got kind of refracted light all over my eyes, and I can't see what I'm doing because there's muck on the glasses, and you take them off again, you think, oh, I'll just squint and hope for the best. And if you're putting dirty glasses on, it really doesn't help you see where you're going. It doesn't help you see things clearly at all. And this is the first problem with comparison. Even if it was a good idea to compare with other people, there's an issue that we're not actually very good at seeing ourselves or seeing others truly. Our eyesight actually isn't as good as we think it is. You may have had this situation. For me, this was just a couple of weeks ago, last week that this, I noticed this, where you think you look like a certain thing or sound like a certain thing until you see a picture of yourself or a video of yourself, and you think, I don't look like that, do I? For me, it was last week. There was a baptism which took place, two baptisms that took place just here. And a video ended up on Facebook of me baptizing someone. And I looked at myself and thought, I don't look like that, do I? I knew I was skinny, but goodness me. And I was just looking at myself and think, wow, that's, that's not the image I had of myself. And it's funny, isn't it? Because you look in a mirror a few times a year, a day, however often it is. A minute for some. Maybe you check your image and you, you know what you look like, but sometimes you're just caught off guard by, by seeing a photo of yourself, which is why some of us don't like having photos taken without realizing that we look like that all the time. <laughs> everybody else can see. There's nothing embarrassing about us seeing what we look like because everybody else sees it all day long. But it's just us that don't notice what we look like. And actually, sometimes it's a bit like that with this sense of comparison. We, our glasses are dirty. Paul, in this passage, 1 Corinthians 13, this is in the middle of, of him talking about amazing gifting that God's given to people like us in the church. God's given loads of gifts, and there's this beautiful chapter on love in the middle of these two chapters about gifting. And he's telling people how to use their gifts for God's glory, to use them in love. And he's talking about the gifts that really matter, or the things that really matter. And, and really emphasizing love. And he says this, For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I'm fully known. And he's looking forward to a future day when we'll know the truth, when we'll see the things that really matter, when the things that seem so important now won't seem quite as important because we'll be in God's presence and we'll be in a new heaven and a new earth and, and everything will be so different and then we'll be fully known. It'll be like the scales come off our eyes. Or in Paul's illustration, like we stop looking at a reflection which is back to front and you start looking at things as they really are. One day we'll see. Corinth was, the place he's writing to, was well known as producing some of the best bronze mirrors of the day. So the problem isn't the actual performance of the mirror, it's the fact that the image is a reflection and it's just not the original. I'm increasingly aware, uh, realizing that self-awareness takes time. That it, as I'm growing older, I'm realizing more things about myself that I thought I already knew. I'm discovering new bits about myself that surprise me from time to time. And maybe you're doing the same. Maybe you're coming into a growing sense of self-awareness as you realize 
who you are. There's all sorts of things you can do to, to help with this. There's Myers-Briggs analysis or Strength Finder, all sorts of personality profiles you can do. If you're on Facebook, by the end of a couple of hours, you can discover what car you should be driving, what color you are, what, your, what vegetable you resemble. You can discover all sorts of things about your personality. If you do all these quizzes, most of them are useless. Um, sorry if that offends you. Um, but they're fun. But it's taking a long time to get to know ourselves. I think there's a truth in this that our eyesight gets worse over time normally. But our insight gets better. Our eyesight gets worse, but our insight gets better, which is why sometimes it's very helpful to ask an older person for some advice. Not because uh, they're old and they know everything. It's because they've, they've had their fair share of making mistakes. And they know what to avoid. I, for my kids, I, I, I've done a few things wrong, and so I know not to do those things again. And sometimes you can pass on a little bit of that wisdom. Sometimes people have to make their own mistakes. Um, but it's just, I, I just wonder if actually as our eyesight gets worse, our insight should be getting better. But we don't only see ourselves wrong, we see others wrongly too. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, that you think you know somebody quite well, you think you've got the measure of them, and then they do something that really surprises you. And sometimes it can be a really good thing. And that's very humbling when you've put somebody into a particular category and then they surprise you by their genius, their goodness, their compassion, their, their kindness. You think, wow, I didn't expect that from them. And you re- hopefully you realign your categories and hopefully you rip them up. And so I should never be putting people in those categories in the first place. We know we shouldn't judge, but we spend our lives comparing with people. And as a society that we've created, we don't help ourselves. To get here, many of you will have driven past or walked past advertising hoardings. You will have watched on your TV screens adverts and flicked through magazines or looked on the internet with adverts all over the place. There's not many people in those adverts who aren't flawless. There's not many who don't have perfect skin and washboard abs. There's not many who aren't the peak of physical perfection. And we drive past those all the time and we know We know that they're photoshopped to within an inch of their life. We know that the people who are pictured there for us look nothing like the image. But that still doesn't help because something's happening in our brain as we look at these images and we measure ourselves against them. Maybe you're not afflicted by that. Maybe that doesn't bother you. But one area where it might is in the whole realm of social media, Facebook and Instagram and all those sort of things that people are engaging in. And we put on those things a carefully curated version of our lives. All of us do this, if you're using them. You you put on the things you want other people to see. That's the whole point. It's not a real-time showing of your life, and it's no worse for that. It's not a problem until you forget that when you're using it. It's not a problem that people curate their lives and put the best bits on or the bits they want you to see. Sometimes the problems, sometimes the painful bits sometimes the embarrassing bits, but the whole point is that we're putting on there things we want other people to see. It doesn't give us a true reflection of our lives. And when you're looking at Facebook, and uh, uh, they're a bit like those Christmas round-robin letters that people get. You know? you know the ones? Dear everybody, this year's been another year of walking from success to triumph to further success. The children were brilliant at the, at the beginning of the year. They've just excelled in everything they've ever done. And, and you get to the end and you think, oh, well, I won't bother writing mine this year then. And, and Facebook social media is a little bit like that, but all the time. And that's okay. 
it's not harmful until you get sucked into thinking that this is what other people's lives really are like. Because they're not. They don't put the boring bits on. We don't put the mundane... Nobody... I've not seen... Now, you're probably going to go away and post this immediately. But I've not yet seen videos of people putting the bins out on Facebook. <laughs> or sweeping up the floor or mopping up. You know, it's just the boring bits of life. They just don't go on. And you can look at someone else's life and think, oh, their life's so shiny. It's so funny. It's so... Oh, they're so gregarious. They're, they're just amazing. And look at me. Second problem. Your scales are wonky. This is the next significant problem when we're looking to compare ourselves, as often we do, is that we're not always aware of what the right things to compare are. So not only can't we see properly, but sometimes we don't actually know what really matters. Should we be measuring our good looks, our popularity, our success? How should we measure our success? Should we measure our wealth, or our happiness, or our steadiness, or our health, or our family, or the behavior of our kids, or the happiness of our kids, or the results of our kids, or the cars that we're driving, or the number of friends we have, or what what should we be measuring? This, This one verse comes from a story in Matthew's Gospel where a woman comes up to Jesus. She's a mum. And her husband is called Zebedee, which is, of course, a fabulous name. And this story says this, The mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and, kneeling down, asked a favor of him. How many of you know when someone kneels down in front of you to ask a favor? That's, it's pretty heavy duty, this is, okay? You're either in trouble or there's something very serious about to happen. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Wow. She's saying, Jesus, you're going to die. Or at least you're going to be the coming king. When you get there, when you're enthroned, I want one on the right and one on the left, please. Thanks very much. Wow. Wow. She's asking maybe for, she's certainly asking for influence and significance and prestige. Asking that my boys, they're the best boys, you know. I want them on either side. And Jesus says this. He says, you don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. And he goes on to say, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? And he's talking about the suffering he's going to endure and all the rest of it. And they do. James, who's one of the sons, is martyred and John is exiled. And so they do suffer for their faith. But I don't think that's the major point. I want to focus in on this question. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. You see, what to the mum seems so important to Jesus is irrelevant. It matters nothing to him who sat on his right and his left. He goes on to say, these places belong to those for whom they've been prepared by my father. It ain't nothing to do with me. I don't care. And yet this woman is so caught up in the prestige and honor that should be accorded to her sons. The truth is this, that much of their time the disciples spend arguing about who's the greatest. Comparison, if you think it doesn't apply to you, that's great. But comparison gripped the disciples. And at least they were honest about it. See, often we deceive ourselves, but at least they were honest about it. And they, you often catch them in, in, unawares when they're arguing. Say, well, I'm the greatest. No, no, I'm the greatest. And you can imagine 
the disciples recounting stories of their mission trips. Well, we saw four people get released from demons. Well, we saw five. And a healing. Well, we had a raising from the dead over here, and we well, had blind eyes open. You can imagine this kind of debate that goes on, and, and we catch them every now and then, and Jesus always interrupts and says things like, well, he who wants to be greatest should be the least. If you want to lead, you should serve. And he always offers an alternative route because he understands something that's more important. The passage we had earlier from Corinth is written to a church who don't really know what they're doing. They don't understand what's important. They've got spiritual gifts and miracles and wonders and amazing things happening, but their lives are off track and they've lost sight of God. And he's telling them off. Paul's telling them off and he says, look, you've forgotten what's important. You're really spiritual, but you're also really fleshly and you've forgotten love and you've forgotten following Jesus. You've forgotten the things that matter. I'm growing to realize in life that if you're waiting to be recognized, rewarded, honored, you could be waiting a long time. Because the things that really matter to God are often the things that nobody else notices. They're not even the things that you get OBEs and MBEs and gongs for. They're things that just nobody else notices. But God notices. And he rewards what's done in secret. He rewards those... Jesus notices when the woman gives a tiny amount of money but has given everything. Jesus says that when we pray in private, the Father sees what's done in secret. And Jesus consistently teaches the leadership of the town. If you want to go higher, then go lower. If you are still frustrated that after serving for a while now, nobody else has noticed your brilliance, you've probably missed the point. And I have too. Thirdly, finally, it's not your problem. So what are we seeing firstly? The reasons not to compare. Firstly, your glasses are dirty. Secondly, your scales are wonky. Thirdly, it's not your problem. I love this story. I love this account. This is John 21. And this is after Jesus has died. He's been raised from the dead. He's meeting with his disciples at various points. And he meets at this point with Peter. And this is part of Peter's restoration. Whatever you think you've got, you've blown it and you've gone too far. God can't love you. You can't follow God anymore. You've just made a mess. Well, Peter sets the example for us. Because Peter's denied he ever knew Jesus. He's denied he's got anything to do with Jesus. And if you think you've gone too far, well, Peter, I think, shows you that there's still hope. Because Peter three times has denied his Savior, the one he's walked with, the one he's followed, the one he's uh, healed people, in whose name he's healed people. And he said, no, I I had nothing to do with him. And Jesus, in this chapter, restores him. And he brings back hope. And he brings back the possibility that Peter can be commissioned and can serve Jesus again. So if you think you've gone too far, You haven't. There's still time. There's still time. And Jesus is saying to you, come home. I can use you. You can follow me. It can be made right. You can be made whole. In this particular chapter, there's a conversation that's going on on a beach. And Jesus has just said to Peter about what his future looks like. He's just explained to him what's going to happen to him. And and the Bible says that after Jesus has told Peter the kind of death he's going to have, And has said to him, follow me. Verse 20 says this. Peter turned and saw that the disciple who Jesus loved was following them. When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? 
Jesus answered, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Peter turned, saw the disciple, and said, What about him? Jesus says, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? It's not our problem. God's plan for someone else isn't our problem. It's not our business. It's God's business. If God gives particular gifts to particular people, that's none of our business. We should celebrate that and rejoice with that. We shouldn't compare ourselves and say, but they're so much more gifted than me. They've got this gift and I haven't. It's none of our business. Our job is to follow Jesus and follow him. If we find ourselves comparing with other people, then it's time to stop. If we're looking around the room and wondering where people have ended up and how successful they are and how amazing their lives are, uh, wondering where they'll end up, we're actually doing ourselves a, causing ourselves a problem because Jesus says here it's not our problem what happens to other people. I don't mean we shouldn't care and be compassionate and support and disciple other people. That's not the point I'm making. The point is this, that actually our worrying about our comparison isn't our problem. We should give it to God. Someone else's gifting or wealth or talent or whatever doesn't constrain or restrict us from being who God has called us to be. So let's not make it a problem. You know, the truth is this, that when someone else is promoted and I'm not, it's not my problem. When they're successful and I'm not, it's not my problem. When they've got more friends than I have, it's not my problem. When they're more popular or more liked, it's okay to celebrate and not think worse of myself. How good someone else's life is none of my business. And if actually we find ourselves reacting negatively to someone else's story of amazing success, it opens a window on our own heart and we can go, ah, I didn't know that was there. And it's a great test. It's a great moment. When you hear of someone else's journey to triumph, it's a great test of our character because it's at that moment when we can try and pull them down or justify ourselves, but the best and simplest and purest thing to do is to celebrate. So God, thank you. Thank you that you're blessing so-and-so. God, just that's amazing. Let's cheer them on. Let's celebrate with them. Come on. And if we had a culture like that, that instead of pulling down the successful, we cheered and celebrated, I think we'd be in a much better place. Because we wouldn't be driven by comparison, our own insecurity, pulling people down to mediocrity so that we all feel safe. But we'd be cheering each other on and rejoicing. It's not God's way for us to be judging and comparing with other people. Leave that to him. He knows the secrets of all men's hearts. Let me wrap up just with a thought about Abigail again. This beautiful sleeping then waking baby child that was with us on stage and is now that way in the crash at the back. As she's growing up, she could spend her whole life comparing herself with others. It's easy as mum and dad to do this because you've got two kids, so you compare one against the other. It's the only way we've got of knowing if they're okay sometimes. And I didn't say this earlier, but what we're doing when we're comparing is we're checking, am I okay? So what's going on? It's an insecurity in the heart of ourselves that we're asking the question, am I okay? Let me measure quickly, am I all right? How am I doing against everybody else? Yeah, I'm sort of okay. So that makes it all right. And Abigail already has been measured. 
She's been checked. She's been weighed when she's born. She's been plotted on a chart. She's on a certain centile of a chart to see how she's doing compared with everybody else. Is she okay or isn't she? And she's, she's healthy. She's at the top. She's doing well. But all our lives we spend being measured. Kids doing SATs tests, doing exams, doing whatever. Who's the more popular? Who's going where? What kind of holiday did our parents go on? What didn't they? We couldn't have a holiday. Whatever. Measure, measuring, measuring all the time. The challenge is not to do this for other people. Matt and Helen, try not to compare her with anybody else. Try and let her be who she is in God. You see, I wonder if we can actually grow in confidence in God enough, in confidence in what God is doing enough, that we stop asking the question, am I okay, and then measuring it by how everybody else is doing. But ask the question, am I okay, and listen to what God says, alone. Because I tell you this, if we're going to keep on measuring by other people, we're just going to look like everybody else. And I don't think you're called, or I'm called, to look like everybody else. I think we're called to be exceptional people. Loved by an amazing God. Not comparing ourselves with anybody, but following the King of Kings. As he says, come, walk this way. Shall we pray? Now, just as I pray, I want you to honestly reflect on your own life as I'm trying to do on mine. And ask whether perhaps you've been guilty of comparing yourself with others. If you find yourself checking that you're okay by looking at other people. And if you have, then I think there's one simple point of application I'm going to encourage us to make today. And that's to be increasingly aware of this in our own lives. That's the purpose of my preach today. It's just to highlight that this is an issue and it's debilitating, it's crippling us. It's shrinking us. It's causing us to stop doing what God has called us to do. And we're just getting distracted. Just before I pray, you may have noticed in that reading that where Peter was following Jesus and walking with him, the scripture actually said this. It says, Peter turned and saw the disciple who Jesus loved was following them. See, the truth is this, that Peter had to turn away from Jesus to look for John, to find someone to compare himself with. He was already walking with Jesus. They just had themselves there, Jesus and Peter, and they were walking along. And Peter had to turn away from Jesus to see somebody else and say, what about him? And for some of us, we've been turning away from what God says, and we've been looking to other people, and it's time to stop. It's time to turn back, to just keep walking with Jesus side by side and listen to what the Savior is saying. So let's pray. God, for so many of us, we can feel all sorts of things when we see other people's success or failure. Lord, I confess that at times I, I've been guilty of feeling worse when someone else succeeds and feeling better when they don't. And Lord, that's hideous because it shows the darkness of my own heart. Lord, for all those times we've looked at other people and we've used them as a reference point to see how we're doing. And we've come off better or worse and felt better or worse about ourselves as a result. Lord, we pray that you'd show us what that process is doing to us. 
I pray you'd help us see how small that keeps us and you'd bring a release today from that sense of comparison that as Abigail's growing up, she wouldn't be measured in our eyes against anybody else, but that she'd be able to flourish for who she is. And that the same would be true of us, Lord. That we wouldn't need to diminish others to rise up ourselves. That we wouldn't need to squash anybody else down to consider ourselves successful. But Lord, that you would highlight the danger of comparison and bring a release in our lives today. God set us free by opening our eyes to see that our glasses are dirty, that our scales are wonky, we've been measuring the wrong things. And actually, it's not our problem, but yours. Lord, we want to keep walking side by side with you and listening only to you. We pray the same for Abigail as we pray for ourselves. Lord, set us free in Jesus' name. Amen.